From the Centre for Advancing Journalism at the University of Melbourne, this is The Yarn. I'm Clancy Balin. Have you ever looked at a group of ants carrying a dead animal back to the colony and wondered, how do they know how to work together so well? Or pondered how storks know how to migrate from Europe to North Africa for the winter? Well, there's a word for it, stigmagy. It's the scientific term for indirect coordination of a group of things in an environment. Humans, bacteria and bugs, we all swarm together whether we realise it or not. In part one of Swarm, we looked at the human desire for connection and gathering. For part two, we're talking about animals. From the behaviour of insects to jellyfish blooms, we ask what drives animals to band together and how is our changing environment going to affect them? These stories have been produced as part of an upcoming exhibition with the Science Gallery Melbourne with the help of mentors from All the Best. First up, a brief history of Australia's East Coast mouse plagues. Angus Thompson reports. Millions and millions of mice. It's hard for us city folk to imagine the ground six inches thick with furry grey bodies scampering in every direction. We'd go out, we'd come home and we'd find some, you know, very pregnant little mouse that'd get under the kids' bed clothes and decide to have the babies in the bed You'd set a mouse trap and you'd probably get four or five in that one mouse trap. He said, you can hear them, the mice, they're there. You can hear them all over the place. John Goldsmith lived through three mouse plagues in 40 years as a farmer near Gunnedah in northern New South Wales. About 1957, 58, again probably in about the very early 60s, and again in 84. John wasn't long out of school when the first plague struck. He remembers driving into town with his father at the wheel. He screamed to a stop. We had an old car that had a felt lining hood in it, and that was all moving with the mice up in there. But he decided he had to pull up a stop because the mouse had decided that it wanted to get out of it, so he ran up one leg, which was the accelerator leg, and came down the other leg. But nothing compared to the plague of 84. John spent months trying to get some media coverage of what was happening in Gunnedah. When a TV crew from Channel 9 eventually visited the farm, they weren't prepared for what they would find. <laughs> give you a rough idea, the, Tim Klukas, the guy that did the interview, he said, OK, I'll walk into this patch where there's a lot of mice and I'll ask you guys to turn all the lights on. And anyway, we turned it on and there was an almighty scream out of him. It's a living sea of mice. And he suddenly realised that the, uh, the mice wanted somewhere to hide. Uh, and up the legs of his pants was the best place to go. Next time it appeared, if you watch the TV... Uh, No comment about it, but his uh, uh, pants legs are tucked in with his socks very tight, I tell you. You can't walk anywhere without walking on at least five, six, seven dozens of mice. Ah, look, yeah, mice are everywhere where humans are. That's mouse expert Steve Henry. For most of 2021, he's been helping farmers in New South Wales deal with their worst mouse plague since 1984. Yeah, we provide these wonderful environments for mice to live in. So if you're talking about cropping systems, um, we're creating an environment with lots of shelter, lots of food. Similarly, in our houses and towns and around towns, we we live in warm houses that have lots of food um, and lots of shelter places. As anyone that's lived in a share house will know, mice are breeding machines. They start breeding when they're six weeks old. Um, and they can have a litter of six to ten babies every 19 to 21 days after that. 
Since European invasion, 90% of native vegetation in temperate Australia has been destroyed, making way for mouse-friendly monocrops, transport systems and sprawling urban spaces. But Steve says mouse plagues are actually a really good time for some of our native species. So in Australia we live in a boom-bust system, so as mouse numbers go up, that puts a lot of food in the system for predators, and so the survival of the predators then goes up. So, how does it all end? With the same problems facing all species that swarm. As is the case in human populations, if you get a lot of interaction, that facilitates the spread of disease. The good news is mice aren't washing their hands and putting on masks. At the same time, they're running low on food, so they're becoming quite stressed. That also helps facilitate the spread of disease. Because they're running out of food, they start turning on the sick and weak ones. Mice, if they find a nest of babies and they're not their own, they're going to eat them. But the effects of a plague linger long after the mice have gone. I spoke to one farmer who took 400 mice out of his house in one night. This has a significant psychological impact on rural communities and people just get sick of dealing with mice. I wonder how John feels looking back on the whole experience. I don't know. You didn't feel a lot about it. You just... The stink was terrible. The kids thought it was, to a degree, great fun uh, because of mice everywhere. The cats and dogs, you know, bat them round for a while. They were really keen and eager to start with, but in the end, uh, they just got sick of them too. Um, but I, it, it's just something you got there, you put up with it until that went. And when you hear the sound of a million tiny feet scurrying in the night, It's not so hard to see the parallels with these other natural disasters. A flood of mice leaving devastation in its wake. To be honest, there's nothing much you can do about it, really. A drought or a flood, turns out a mouse plague's the same. You live and die with the ups and downs on the land. Reporting there by Angus Thompson. This year, Melbourne's oceans have been inundated by jellyfish. Reddish-pink lion's mane jellyfish, some of them the size of footballs, beautiful but painful. It's been the worst infestation in 20 years. When jellyfish move into beaches, it's called a bloom, and it can be beautiful and a little scary. Science journalist Amalia Hart reports on the impacts of this strange phenomenon. When jellyfish come together in large groups, sometimes kilometres wide, it's called a bloom. These blooms can be hauntingly beautiful, otherworldly even, but they're also destructive and hint at climate and ecosystem change. I'm Amalia Hart. I'm a science journalist. I've been fascinated with jellyfish ever since I saw them strewn across a beach as a child. I was captivated. Penelope Davis, a Melbourne-based artist, knows what that's like. She once saw one of these blooms while walking her infant son along the foreshore of Port Phillip Bay. I used to push him in his pusher along the, um, the, the foreshore and the shoreline this particular year, maybe 2009, 2008 or 2009, the Elwood foreshore shoreline was clogged with uh, large jellyfish, large blubbery jellyfish, and it went on for a few weeks. What alarmed Davis so much was the relationship between jellyfish blooms and ecosystem changes. Jellyfish thrive in warmer waters and can survive pollution because they require less oxygen than other marine animals to live. As they thrive, they create their own problems, crowding out other species. Michael Kingsford is a professor of marine biology at James Cook University and a jellyfish expert. 
So jellyfish have been through uh, a number of mass extinctions, which a very obvious one would be when the dinosaurs went extinct 65 million years ago. So they survived that. So, whew, you know, they're going to be around a long time. So a bit of climate change from us is not going to make them go extinct, would be my view. Um, what the danger potentially is is changes to ecosystems as a result of there being too many of them. What Davis saw on the Elwood foreshore inspired her to create an installation at a local gallery of huge jellyfish, some filled with lights, that moved around the room on fishing lines. Davis wanted to capture the tension between the beauty of jellyfish blooms and their relationship to environmental degradation, so she used waste materials to build the creatures. I suppose as an artist you're always working with your hands and your head and um, your sense of aesthetics and, and your rational self. Uh, so on the one hand, jellyfish are beautiful when they move through the water. They're, they're um, entrancing to watch and, you know, some, sometimes they have bioluminescent qualities and they pulsate and uh, it's like watching some sort of ballet. But, um, yeah, on the other hand, um, they represented um, uh, something sort of monstrous and sinister. The swarming behaviour of jellyfish is what can turn these seemingly innocuous little creatures into a destructive force. They've brought down aircraft carriers, they've brought down nuclear power plants and they've brought down aquaculture facilities, for example, uh, with very large numbers of jellyfish that block the entrance to something or you know, they'll block up the size of aquaculture nets so things suffocate, tentacles get through, hurt the animals. But the Ronald Reagan, one of the world's biggest uh, aircraft carriers, got stuck in Brisbane Harbour because its intakes got jammed up with jellyfish. So the humble, brainless jellyfish brought down one of the world's most powerful warships, you know. They have this, this weediness or this toughness, so they can, they're, like, they're like weeds, and weeds, weeds become a, a disaster when they swarm, when, you know, they proliferate and mass together. Davis sees jellyfish swarms as a metaphor for the way that humans have changed the planet they're kind of a symbol of what we have created. I mean, we're, we're the ones responsible for polluting the oceans and, um, for, you know, destroying the environment. We've, we've created the circumstances which mean that these, these jellyfish survive and flourish at the expense of all else. That story was by Amalia Hart, In Australia and all over the world, insecticides are being used to manage pests that traditionally have been thought to destroy crops. But the environmental damage from these practices is threatening to destabilise our insect populations. For our last story, reporter Matthew Hall investigates how farmers are learning to love the insects that swarm to their farms. Most of us don't think much about insects. At best, they're a nuisance. Is it gone? At worst, the stuff of nightmares. But the bugs are coming for our food, and we need to be prepared. Don't worry, it's not that kind of horror story. And anyway, bees are typically one of the good guys. But for farmers around Australia, insects really can be a nightmare. Each year, our national harvest loses almost $400 million 
to insect damage. Much of the solution to date has been what you can hear. Tractors pulling boom sprays, delivering powerful insecticides to crops. And we've taken pride in how effective they are. But their days are numbered. I'm Associate Professor Paul Yamana. I'm a director of a science organisation called Caesar Australia. We are largely reliant on pesticides to control a lot of insect pests, not just here in Australia, but overseas as well. In a lot of broadacre systems in particular, these pesticides are often quite broad spectrum, so they're not necessarily targeted to kill just the insect that we're focusing on. So, for example, we might be putting out an insecticide spray to control an aphid, but unfortunately that, that chemical spray might also kill other insect pests that are present in that field. They might kill ladybird beetles, they might kill lacewings or other predatory bugs. But it really kills them dead. This is where farmers can be caught in a bit of an unfortunate cycle of relying more and more on pesticides because each time you use a chemical, there are less and less beneficials in that system. Devastating fragile ecosystems is only the beginning. Chemicals can leach into the soils where they can disrupt soil biology. Some chemicals, of course, are known to leach into waterways where they can impact local aquatic fauna as well. And pests are evolving insecticide resistance. Soon, we may not be able to control them. Chemicals that were once upon a time very effective at controlling a particular species or a particular population, those chemicals are no longer effective. So it is often meaning farmers need to put out multiple chemical applications, they need to use more expensive chemicals, and often it means that economic yield loss has already occurred by this point. So some of the systems are, are already breaking down very much for farmers anyway. A number of Australian companies are now using drones to not only monitor swarms of insect populations and communities, but deliver good predator bugs precisely to where they're needed in a crop. It's just one of a swathe of new technologies in integrated pest management. So basically integrated pest management is, I guess, a model whereby we don't just rely on chemicals to control insect pests, but we're taking, as the name suggests, of course, a more integrated approach. So we're using, for example, biological controls. And so those biological controls are predators, uh, parasitoids or naturally occurring fungi and pathogens that will naturally suppress or control pest populations. Things like ladybird beetles, uh, lacewings, there's a whole range of beneficial insects, for example, that are very effective at controlling insect pests. And IPM doesn't necessarily mean no chemicals, um, but I guess what it means, in, in my view, is that chemicals are not the first thing that we grab off the shelf. But these swarms of good bugs get even smaller. The first pillar of research in, in AgPIP that we're particularly excited about is the use of endosymbionts. So endosymbionts are secondary bacteria that live in a whole range of insects and they provide pretty important functions. So we're looking, for example, in the first instance at aphids. Often we're concerned about aphids and farmers are very concerned about aphids because they spread a number of different plant viruses. And these viruses can be very catastrophic to particular crops. And so we're looking at ways of being able to manipulate these endosymbionts that are already living within these uh, aphid hosts to essentially block them from transmitting these viruses. The way forward is to work with nature instead of trying to dominate it. 
I think Australian farmers are incredibly innovative and incredibly proactive and are very open to new ideas. What really excites me the most is how we can truly achieve biodiversity outcomes, but at the same time continue to produce very high value food and commodities here in Australia. That was Matthew Hall reporting. My name is Clancy Balin and you've been listening to The Yarn. The Yarn is produced at the Centre for Advancing Journalism at the University of Melbourne. Our three stories were reported by Angus Thompson, Amalia Hart and Matthew Hall. Our executive producer is Louisa Lim. A massive thank you to Mel Chun from All The Best Radio and Louisa Lim for their help in producing this week's stories. If you like the show, follow us, rate us, leave us a review. We'll be back next week with part three of Swarm. See you next week.